Hello, buddies, fellow Franco fans, fans of the bazaar, fans of the cool man, fans of Uncle Jess. Hello, this is Jason Rudy, your host once again for the Franco Observer podcast. This is episode 14, and on this Franco podcast, this is going to be a special Franco podcast, Franco Observer podcast episode, because um, this is going to stray from the normal of the uh, podcast where we have um, the introduction, like I normally do, introducing the film, talking about the behind the scenes, and then doing the review. Um, On this one, we're doing the unfinished film, Mandinga. It was unreleased, and so therefore, we cannot watch it and tell you and review it and tell you about about it. But what I can do is I can tell you the story behind it, what happened, how this changed the um, Irwin C. Dietrich and Jess Franco relationship, and what happened with all the situation. Um, like all episodes, um, I'm this is researched from the Flowers of Perversion book by Stephen Thrower, available at Amazon. This is from Volume 2, which is uh, from, like, um, uh, what is it, the first one they do? Like, uh, Julia to 69, from that all the way to the end. So, it's uh, from that era. So, basically, um, what happened was, after the Die Marquise von Saad was done and released, and not released, but when that shoot was done, um, it had, he decided to do Mandinga. So basically, here's everything from the top. Mandinga, unreleased, Italy, 1975. Alternative titles. La Mandinga was the shooting title. Mandinga die Nachtesla Sklaven, proposed German release title. Mandinga, the naked slave. Uh, so yeah, he had done die Sklaven, and now this was die Nachtesslaven. Um, production company was SEFI Cinematography from Rome again. Uh, this, the eventual rights holder of the Franco footage was Irwin Dietrich. And uh, the timeline on this is the partial shooting date was he did a partial shooting date in November of 75, and then the shooting continued from December 75 to early January 76. And the Dietrich and SEFI contract was eventually signed on March 18th of 80, of 76. Uh, the director of this, Jess Franco, producer was Mario Alabiso. Director of photography, camera operator was Jess Franco. And makeup was Michel Goningjin. The cast on this was William Berger, uh, Lena Romay, Benny Cardoso, who had worked with him since Girl from Rio, uh, Dennis Torre, the beautiful Martine Steedle, and Ramon Ardid, which was Lena Romay's husband at the time. So here we go from the top. Production notes. This failed production was a major disaster for Franco, and cost him dearly on both a personal and financial level. Friendships were destroyed, chickens came home to roost, and once the dust had settled, he found himself in a very different relationship with his producer, Erwin Dietrich. In late November 1975, Franco accepted an offer from an Italian company called SEFI Cinematografica, possibly with some minor input from Eurocene, to shoot a script titled Mandinga, essentially a Mandingo knockoff concerning black slavery and the erotic undercurrents thereof. 
Franco and his crew took up residence at the Hotel Le Quetezal in La Grande Motte in the south of France, while shooting began at the nearby Castle Moguer in Montpellier. Then in early January, when the film was almost completed, Franco disappeared without explanation, taking Rome with him and leaving the cast and crew, including actors Benny Cardoso and Dennis Torre, Rome's husband Ramon Ardid, and makeup artist Michel Grodin, hanging out at the hotel. After two weeks with no news, the hotel management called the police, who came to interview the stranded production team. Cardoso, Torres, and Ardid were advised to file a complaint against Franco or else they'd be personally liable for the mounting hotel costs. In later interviews, Franco claimed that the budget had dried up and he'd been unable to reach the Italian producers by telephone, so he and Romay took a train to Rome in search of an explanation and or money. This was as far as he ever went toward explaining what had happened. Erman Dietrich, however, was more forthcoming and said... He had a lot of financial troubles, overdue bills he had to pay. Several producers were hunting for him because he still owed them large sums. Every once in a while, he just disappeared from the hotel where he was staying without paying the bill, leaving his suitcases and personal belongings behind. Luckily for Franco, this time, Erwin Dietrich stepped in to save the day. He made the necessary apologies, arranged to settle Franco's hotel debt, and retrieved his belongings, which had been impounded by the hotel. I can remember once seizing one of his suitcases from a hotel in the south of France, from which he had a moonlight flit. I sent a guy down there to pay Franco's bill and fetch the luggage, because Jess told me it contained the negative of a film I had already paid him for. Of course, there was no negative in the suitcase. However, according to U. Huber, a negative was in fact retrieved. Maybe not in the suitcase, but among Franco's abandoned possessions. It represented all that had been shot so far of the third film in Franco's original deal with Erwin Dietrich. Uber Hugh, sorry, Hugh Huber, who knew Dietrich and was granted access to the elite film archives, writes, The retrieved film cans were indeed the incomplete Dysclaven, slaves. This explains the long gap in the production of Dysclaven, Franco's hotel debts of 14,000 francs were paid in June 76 by Dietrich's production manager, Eduard Stokely. Stokely collected the film cans and also brought with him Franco's suitcase containing a love letter from Lena, his address slash phone book, treatments, partially handwritten, for Midnight Party, Shining Sex, Lorna, etc., and some fake fun movie posters drawn with titles like Lashksiv and ejaculation. So it seems that Franco's story about going to Italy in search of missing funds was, shall we say, the invention of an unreliable narrator. If it really had been the fault of the Italian producers, he would not have needed to make himself scarce. Given that he failed to alert his stranded production crew, it's difficult to avoid the assumption that he did a runner because the financial shortfall was his fault. He never rang the hotel to speak to the cast and crew because he knew how furious they would be when they found out there was no money left to pay them. Bearing in mind Dietrich's observation about several producers hunting for him, perhaps Franco was personally responsible for the budget drying up. Did an angry creditor from an earlier production track him down to the Hotel Le Quetzalcoatl and bang on his door with a couple of sturdy fellows in tow, demanding immediate payment? 
Did Franco write a check from the Mandinga budget to get them off his back? If so, he must have realized that this would not sit well with the Mandinga cast and crew still patiently awaiting their money. One imagines Franco and Romay clamoring out a third-floor balcony on knotted bedsheets in the middle of the night, hailing a cab and making a dash for the airport. Going on the run with his muse Lena Romay by his side, the director must have felt a little like one of his own nefarious characters, as though the criminal scenarios of films like Downtown, Women Behind Bars, and Midnight Party were leaking into real life. Perhaps it was even fun in a reckless and irresponsible sort of way, but it's harder to feel empathy when you realize that they were betraying not just a few strangers, but their close friends, too. Benny Cardoso, a semi-regular in Franco land since The Girl from Rio in 1968, never worked with them again. The biggest betrayal, though, was suffered by Ramon Ardid, Romay's young husband and Franco's friend and business associate. For Romay to run off with Franco like that was a public slap in the face that must have been deeply humiliating for Ardid as he hung around with the makeup girl and the secondary cast, waiting for his wife to return. Not surprisingly, it was the nail in the coffin of their marriage. Yeah, that's pretty jacked up on a side note. So basically, yeah, it looked like Franco ditched everybody and took off, and who knows if he was searching for people that he owed money to, or if he ended up losing money or spending money he didn't have, and that seemed to be a, a constant thing with his career, so... So yeah, going back to that, um, Ramon Ardid first entered Franco's orbit in 1969, taking uncredited press photos of Soldad Miranda during the Barcelona shoot for Count Dracula. Franco liked the pictures, and a few months later invited Ardid to take promotional photographs for She Killed in Ecstasy, 1970. As a result, he was also on hand during filming of the unfinished Julieta. He took the well-known keyhole photo used to promote She Killed in Ecstasy, which actually came from the Julieta shoot. When Franco set up his production company, Manacoa, he invited Ardid to become his regular photographer. Toward the end of 1972, Franco met Ardid's 18-year-old wife, Lena Romay, and immediately realized her immense screen potential. Over the following three years, Romay and Ardid became permanent fixtures in the Franco universe. Romay, of course, became Franco's screen muse, while Ardid moved from still photographer to assistant cameraman to production secretary, and also became a regular acting presence, being quite willing to strip off and get involved in the erotic adventures on screen. By the end of 1975, he graduated from general factum to trusted plenipotentiary, authorized by Franco to sign documents on Manicoa's behalf. When Franco ran off with Romay, it was the last straw for Ardid, who may have already been uncomfortable with the ever-growing rapport between his wife and Jess Franco, one need only to watch downtown to see which way the wind was blowing. But what about the film at heart of the situation? Earlier accounts of the story claim that Franco had shot less than half of Mandinga before doing his moonlight flit. Newly available documentation, however, suggests otherwise. On G January 3rd of 1976, the film's Italian producer, S.E.F.I., wrote to Erwin Dietrich, We humbly... We hereby confirm that the film above, on the instructions of Mr. Jesus Franco Manera, is your property for the territories of Germany, Austria, Switzerland. We also confirm that the negative is deposited with the Technicolor Laboratory in Rome, and that we hereby give you access so that you can make all the copies that you hold necessary for the exploitation of your film in the territories of your skills. We will also send you the international columns 
in due course and the list of dialogues to establish your German dubbing. According to this letter, Mandingo is not abandoned unfinished. A viable negative had been deposited in Rome. This makes it clear that Franco's story about the budget drying up was bunk. On, fi- on January 15th of 76, Dietrich wrote to Franco that the hotel... I'm sorry, Dietrich wrote to Franco at the Hotel Le Quetzalcoatl to discuss completion of Die Marquise von Saad and Barbed Wire Dolls, evidently expecting an answer by return post. But by the time Franco and Romay had done their disappearing act, two months later, however, something had changed. On March 18th, Dietrich wrote this short note countersigned by Franco. I hereby confirm that my request slash demand to Mr. Jess Franco Manera in regard to the film Mandinga, The Naked Slave, has been voided by the conclusion and implementation of the contract with Elite Films AG. I therefore relieve Mr. Franco Manera completely and utterly. The following day, Franco signed a handwritten note promising to pay approximately £6,000 to Madame Elabiso of SEFI Cinematographia. This sum would be around £40,000 or $56,000 in today's money. Italian producer Mario Alabiso was present in the first meeting between Franco and Dietrich in late April, early May 75. Presumably one of the projects discussed was SEFI's feature production of Mandinga. The person to whom Franco owed money in the wake of Mandinga was evidently Mario's wife, with whom one whom assumes was the executive in charge of the company. In essence, what seems to have happened is that Dietrich extricated Franco from his legal liability to complete Mandinga, and Franco himself paid a sizable sum of money to the producers to compensate them. Why was this necessary when the film had apparently been completed? Perhaps after scrutiny of the negative, the Alabisos regarded it as unreleasable? This was, after all, a time when Franco was dashing off films with such a cavalier attitude to technical merit that Dietrich had initially considered shelving barbed wire dolls. Maybe Mandinga was beyond rough and ready. Maybe it was genuinely appalling, out of focus, incoherent, too dark, or too overexposed, or simply not the script that had been promised. Eventually, in September of 76, SEFI Cinematographia mounted a second production of Mandinga, directed by obscure spaghetti western helmer Mario Pensati. None of the actors involved were carried over from the Franco production, and the central location of Franco's version, Montpellier's Castle Montaguer, was nowhere to be seen. As far as one could tell, none of the Franco footage was incorporated. Certainly, it suggests that the real reason Franco couldn't shoot in Italy anymore was not because he'd grown sick of the Italian producer, but because they had grown sick of him. In the hothouse context of Rome film production, all it would have taken to blot Franco's reputation was a tiny bit of gossip from one producer to another. Sadly, Franco's Mandinga seems to have ended its days, moldering away in the Technicolor labs in Rome. Perhaps it's still there today, but we can't see the film. We can, thanks to... But while we can't see the film, we can, thanks to Roman Gutiger and U. Huber, take a peek into the contents of the mysterious suitcase that Dietrich retrieved from the Hotel Le Quasicale. Here's a partial list of the contents, including... Jess Franco's notes, script outlines, and plans for future films of January 76. And let's see, it's a list of 16. Starting from 1 to 16. Number 1, The Blue Medea. It's a handwritten synopsis by Jess Franco. 2, Dunia la Novia Eterna. A typewritten story adaptation. 
based on Punchkin's book The Postmaster, adapted by David Kuhn and Jess Franco. This refers to Alexander Pushkin's The Postmaster, short story from his collection, The Tales of Late Ivan Petrovok Belkin, the original tales of a poor Russian station manager, innkeeper, whose orderly life is thrown into chaos when his beloved daughter, Donya, is kidnapped by a handsome hussar. He discovers her whereabouts and tries to see her, but is thrown out without making contact. Upon learning that she now lives in a high-society existence and does not wish to leave, he goes back to his station, a broken man. Number three, Mas que don e voli linda, for typewritten pages. The title, pages headed, um, This Perverse Woman, by David Kuhn. Number four, Yakula, ten pages, handwritten by Jess Franco. This is the Franco's original story, outlined for the film that became La Contessa Noir, also known as Female Vampire. Number five, Lorna the Exorcist, nine typewritten pages. Number six, Minuit Party. Porno Pop and Shining Sex. Four handwritten pages, not in Franco's hand. Cast and character names, crew, plot, shooting times. Number seven, Concert in Six Major Ejaculation. Five typewritten pages. A film by J.J. Johnson, based on a story by Jess and Nicole Franco. A French Belgian co production, executive producer and director Jess Franco. And it's basically a bunch of uh, notes. Let's see. Uh, Okay, that's really not that important. Okay, uh, eight melody in sex major, sexyrella, eight handwritten pages. Nine Julieta de Sade, thirteen handwritten pages, including budget calculations. This adaptation of the Marquis de Sade's Justine is a modern day remount of sequences Franco had already filmed in '68 for his sedan period drama Justine. Number ten, La Porte de Bouillard, The Door of the Mist, a complete screenplay by Alain Petit. After a character created by J. Franco with characters including Irena von Karenstein, the present story is dedicated to J. Franco and to his black countess. Number 11, Les Hermanas de la Cruz, The Sisters of the Cross, complete handwritten story treatment by Jess Franco. Number 12, Les Dos. <clears throat> Number 12, Los Desperados, 13 typewritten pages and 5 pages of handwritten notes. Number 13, Pace e Mezzanotte, script by Gaston de Herrera translates as Peace at Midnight. Number 14, Dracula Jr., a story outline for a multi-monster horror comedy featuring Dracula, Frankenstein, and his monster, the werewolf, the Phantom of the Opera, Quasimodo, and the Invisible Man. Sounds like something I wrote. <laughs> uh, number 15, Tarzana, 10 handwritten pages by Jess Franco. Number 16, hand-drawn poster mock-ups for three imaginary films, Dynamite South, Lasif and Ecstasy Island. So that is basically that part. Uh, that would have been film number 73 from Jess Franco. Um, and then around that same time, uh, unfinished film number six he did was uh, The Killer Wore Black Stockings. It was unfinished. L'Assassin Portrait de la Basse Noise. Uh, Italy, 1975. Um, shooting date was November 75, which was about the beginning of the uh, Mandinga shoot, because that was um, partial shooting date, November 75, and this was a shooting date, November 75. And this had uh, Kathleen Romay, uh, Denise Torre, Benny Cardoso, and Ramon Ardit. And this is a shorter deal. Uh, production notes. In parallel with the shooting of Mandingo, or I'm sorry, Mandinga, 
Franco also began a secret back pocket production called The Assassin War Black Stockings, correspondence from the Elite Film Archives. First mentions the film in relation to a deal being done by Franco and BOS Films. A letter from Hansen to Dietrich dated October 22, 1975, says, We have spoken with Mr. Franco Manera, who assures us that the two pictures of which we have 50% of the foreign sales of i.e. Women Behind Bars and The Assassin Wore Black Stockings, have nothing to do with the four pictures you mentioned in your letter, Dietrich's own Franco Productions. They will have French nationality and the original production company will be Eurocene of Paris. The assumption has long been that the assassin, I'm sorry, that the killer wore black stockings amounted to just a few minutes of footage. However, correspondence from the elite film archives between Franco and the Technicolor Laboratory suggests otherwise. Not a lot is known about the storyline, although according to Alan Petit's Manicoa Files, production manager and actor Denis Denis Torre remembers shooting scenes on rooftops and in hotel rooms, appearing as a killer, hiding under a bed, and being present at the death of a character played by Benny Cardoso. The genre appears to have been kind of a giallo or creamy. From the title, it certainly sounds as though Franco was aiming for the same market as... The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, The Killer Must Kill Again by Luigi Cosi, or, and Vice Has Black Stockings by Tano Cimarosa. Franco tried to shoot a new version of The Killer Wore Black Stockings in 1984, but it never saw the light of day either. So, after these two, uh, basically his film 73 and the unfinished film 6, he then did the three pictures on closed sets with no exterior shots, closely observed by Dietrich, and with camera operators employed by Dietrich, which would be Girls in the Night Traffic, um, White Skin, Black Thighs, and Motto Erotica. Those three are controlled by Dietrich and were unusual and different than Franco's other films, as, like I said, there's no exteriors, no sailboats, all the stuff that made... Franco's films, his own his own style is absent in these next three films because of these situations that you had just heard about. So yeah, so that's going to be uh, the end of this episode, uh, the special shorter episode, probably come in under about a half hour. Uh, if you like the show and want to talk to us, or uh, feel free to. We're at the Franco. We're at Franco Observer, F R A N C O O B S. E-R-V-E-R at yahoo.com FrancoObserver at yahoo.com um, You can also please download the episodes. They increase the numbers uh, makes the audience go up and if we have more audiences we can start uh, co-promoting on other shows and keep building the audiences. So if you like the show please tell your friends. Please download the episodes. Please subscribe. Please rate. Please share. Please uh, leave any positive comments you can. I appreciate it. Uh, I didn't think I mentioned on the last episode, but uh, we have a Franco Observer podcast page on Facebook. We have a Franco Observer podcast page on Instagram. You can find us there. Um, find the podcast at any of your uh, listening platforms. You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, type in Franco Observer and you'll see my channel with the Franco Observer episodes along with other short films I did. Um, other past projects I was involved in is on there as well if you want to check that out 
Uh, let's see what else we want to shoot on here. Um, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up on this one. So, uh, once again, this was episode 14, dealing with film that was never released, film 73, and the unfinished film number 6. That was Mandinga and The Killer Wore Black Stockings. Uh, Franco did a lot of unfinished films um, and things that were unreleased, some that have seen the light of day um, since these books were written, so hopefully we will see things that have disappeared come around again. I know they just did that with, oh, what a honeymoon, and uh, some other things that we thought were unavailable now are popping up, so let's see if Severn jumps ahead and puts out some more Franco stuff. Let's pressure them and get some more Franco Blu-rays out there. But, uh, yeah, you know, there's always good gray market dealers for DVD-Rs of Franco stuff. So, and, you know, that. So, yeah, get a hold of us. Talk to us. We'll let you know cool places to get the cool Franco stuff. I'm always down to let you know where I get my T-shirts, my movies, my books, all that good stuff. Because we're here to share the wealth, not be greedy. We want everybody to know where everything is. Because as a collector and some of you like, somebody you want to find their stuff you know somebody else that's contacts are so important so hopefully i can be your contact to your franco wants and needs so thanks again for listening uh this is always in praise in memory of just franco bringing the name and films of just franco to new eyes and ears i am your host jason rudy this has been a solo episode hope you dug it peace out talk to you soon listen to the next episode girls in the night traffic It was a fun one.